Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. It has been quite a week in many ways. How many of you had a really good week this week? I don't know if I want to ask the other side of that question because there weren't enough hands went up on the first question here. But hopefully um, throughout whatever it was that you were facing this week, the, the good and the bad sometimes. And I think really the word bad doesn't quite fit for a committed believer because the scripture is clear in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for the good, those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And this week's Torah portion, if you looked in the communique, and I believe uh, Shelby did mention it, is called re'eh. Re'eh means see, it means look. It's a word, a Hebrew word still in, in modern Hebrew usage, a very common Hebrew verb. In this case, it's in, it's in the sivui, uh, the command form, that, that says to take note, look. And I want to speak a little bit about that subject, of what, what the parasha, what the Torah portion speaks of, and parashat Ra'eh. And, you know, when we think about Yeshua, Yeshua made many, many statements that were quite far-reaching in their implications. And let me give you a couple examples. We don't have the scriptures to project, but I will uh, say them to you and give you the what we call the address, I'll give you the address of the scripture. And the address for the first one is Luke chapter 7, verse 23. And the idea here is that Yeshua, Jesus, made many statements that have grand implications. And they're not necessarily always statements that are commands. They're not always thou shalt and thou shalt nots. For example, in Luke chapter 7, verse 23, listen to this one, please. He said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me, Yeshua said. It's a curious statement. Because really there's a, a dividing line within that statement, and the dividing line is really a person, and that's him. Blessed is he who is not offended because of, Yeshua said, because of me. And a similar statement that has, uh, you know, pretty grand or far-reaching implications is also in Besarath Mark, the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 15, when Yeshua said, Assuredly, I say to you, please listen to this, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Let me read that again. And then tell me, if you, when you hear that, isn't there quite, a, quite a, a punch to that, so to say, quite an impact to that? He said, Mark 10, 15, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And I don't know, those of you who regularly attend there and, and have a, a true commitment to this congregation, you probably recognize that when we 
play, pray over the children, that's a really special time. How many agree with that? That's a special. I, I love to watch that. And I love to see the kids that sometimes they run to get underneath that talus. And uh, our three kids are growing up now, so I don't have to think so much about it, like Dustin is going to do this and others and Isaac. But when I see them run, I'm thinking, I hope they make it to the talus and get underneath it. <laughs> Start with that. But Yeshua must have looked at children. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Not only probably he observed children and other passages of scripture tell us, including this one, tell us that the children kind of flocked to him. It says that Yeshua took the children into his arms. Another place it says that he blessed the children. And another place, sadly, some of the shlichim, the apostles said, to try to get the children out of the way, so to say. Get them out of the way. Now, frankly, all the years that I've been doing this, which is decades now, I don't have so much trouble with a child crying. Hopefully with good parenting, that's dealt with quickly. Now, I have a little trouble with cell phones going off and all the different tunes and melodies that there is there in the middle of a, a message. But we want, the King James says, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. But these two statements, my point here is these two statements, they're really quite terse statements. They're, they're not long theological treatises here. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Grand implication there. And then the second one, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Yet there are other times when Yeshua spoke in a more of a commandment way. So if you carefully parse the words of Yeshua as we find in the Berit Hadashan, the new, new covenant, you can begin to categorize. There's some that have implications like I just said. Did you notice that neither one of the prior statements, the one from Luke 7 or the one from Mark 10, have, had a thou shalt or thou shalt not in They didn't. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. There's not this, thou shalt do this. There's a statement that talks about a positive approach and there's a statement that, that, that rings out to us and says that we want to make sure that whatever we do is in line with what God wants. But then there's this statement <laughs> from Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. And this is a thou shalt not statement. It's stated this way in the New King James Version. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. How many of you have heard that verse before? Probably most of us. It's considered one of the most repeated ideas of Yeshua's teaching. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And then it continues in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 6. He continues and Yeshua says, but lay up. The idea is do lay up. The first part is do not lay up yourself for yourselves treasures on earth. But the second part is, but do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but do lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then, as you can see, there's a negative do not in there. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. 
And there's also a positive, do lay up treasures in heaven. And the verse right after this explains a little bit, as is often the case with the words of Yeshua, which is fascinating when you think about it, because sometimes we have explanations. Yes, sometimes we have interpretation of his parables that he gives to us, and the best person to interpret a parable is the one who actually speaks it, because they really know the point they're trying to get across. But in this case, the very next verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 Yeshua clarified the underlying, you know, target of his commands. The do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth and the do lay up for yourself treasures in, in heaven. He clarifies what he's trying to say there so that they understand in Matthew 6 verse 22. We see his goal. We see, we see where he's aiming for, to put it in, in one word, he's aiming for the lev. Can you say lev? This is your lev right here, your heart. He's aiming for the heart. And he says in Matthew 6, verse 22, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, these type of verses that I've just read, the one from Luke and from Mark and from Matthew, these type of verses we find often in the Gospels. These type of verses that, that have grand implications. We find them in Yeshua's words. We find the positives you shall and the negatives you shall not. And we realize as we look at these carefully, and even if we go the next step and not just read, but actually get into study them and dig deeper, so to say, just like our children did at Camo. They were diving deeper into the word. That was the whole theme of the, the vacation Bible school we just concluded we realize when we dig deeper into the words of Yeshua that these words, please hear me, are important for us. They're important. They are illuminating our path. They are helping us in our everyday life. And I don't know if you're like me, you do need the Lord's help in your everyday life. I certainly do. I need the Lord's help in decision-making. I need the Lord's help in goals in my life. I need the Lord's help with my speech. I need the Lord's help in how I, I treat others. I need the Lord's help, period. And I think most of you agree, if you did an honest assessment of your life, that you need the Lord's help, too. How many would say you do need the Lord's help? Now, good, I got a lot of hands on that one. We do need the Lord's help. And that, that brings me now to tie this in back to our Torah portion, which is Re'eh, see, all the way back to Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 14. I'd like to present a couple of verses to you. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says back in the Torah. It says, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head, for the dead. Now, some have opined about this, and they've, they've considered and looked at this, that the Lord was telling Israel this time, and they were about to enter into the land of promise. The Lord was telling them that even during their most challenging time, which would be the death of a loved one, for many, that is the most challenging time. Even at their most vulnerable times in life, such as the passing on of someone dear to them, they were not, they were not to be like the heathen. The heathen did these things. They cut themselves. They shaved the front of their head. They did it for the dead as a memorial to the dead. 
And the Lord says, you shall not do that. But then it passes on into the next verse, which is verse 2. It says, and it gives a reason, kind of like what Yeshua did in his word, or what he does in some of his words, as are recorded in the Brit Hadashah, in the New Covenant. It gives kind of a reason why you shall not do these things. It is in verse 2. It says, for you are an Am Kadosh, an Am Kadosh. Can we say those two words together, those two Hebrew words? Am Kadosh. Let's try that again. Am Kadosh. That's what the Hebrew says there. Very simple Hebrew. You are a, translated a holy people, and Am is a people. Can be a nation sometimes. And the word Kadosh is very widely known in believing circles, this Hebrew word. It's the word for holiness, sanctification, being set apart. He says, you are not... For you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are an Am Kadosh. You are a holy people, a set apart people. You are an Am Kadosh, a people set apart to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. End of the quote, verse 2. Now, just these two verses, as you can see, there's a lot to these two verses. And again, when we start, in principle, applying these verses to our lives, in principle, they were spoken initially to Israel. We start applying the principles of these to our life, then we realize there's a calling upon us. If we're going to be true followers of the Lord, then maybe we need to be an Am. Kadosh. How many of you think we do need to be an Am Kadosh? I do. And maybe that's where the rubber meets the road in our lives sometimes is living that out. Living that out in all the areas that we have in life. Living that out in the workplace. Living that out at home. Living that out in our relationship. Living that out in our speech. That we can be an Am Kadosh, a holy people unto the Lord. Now, Yeshua gave what many, what many consider the most challenging of all the commandments. When he declared, it's not the one you might think. There's a good theological debate as if you ask the question of theologians, which is the most challenging statement Yeshua ever made. And there are quite a few challenging ones. I think if we went around this room, you would come up with many different ones that are personally challenging to you. Yet some theologians, as they carefully looked at the word that Yeshua spoke or the words he spoke and the statements that he made, they came up with this one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Here Yeshua said, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, I see one big word flashing in front of me as I read that pronouncement of Yeshua. Again, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I see this flashing in front of me, and that's the word challenge. That is a challenge. It was Greek language scholar Dr. W.E. Vine, whom I highly recommend his book of uh, words, Greek words, uh, put into English and understandable. But Dr. Vine pointed out, he pointed out that the Greek word that's translated as perfect in many English language translations, 
and it's used twice in Matthew 5:48. If you heard it, it says, "You shall be perfect, just as the Lord, uh, your Father in heaven, is perfect." It's used twice there. The word "perfect," that Greek word, he refers to. Quote: This is how he describes that Greek word. This Greek scholar, he says, "Quote: That means, quote, mature, complete in reaching the goal of goodness in your life." A status that has little to do with one's age. Rather, it has everything to do with one's actions, speech, and relationships, especially our interaction with levels of authority in our lives. And we all interact with levels of authority. Obviously, Yeshua, <laughs> obviously, was perfect in all three of these main areas, perfect in his actions, he did nothing wrong. He was the lamb without blemish. He was the spotless lamb. He was the sinless Messiah. He did nothing wrong. His actions were blameless. They were tamim. They were they're perfect. And his words also, nary a stray word came out of his mouth. Even when he was challenged at times. Have you been challenged by people at times? Even when he was challenged, he still said the right things, that which pleased the Lord. Didn't always please the ears of mankind, or even those who he was addressing. If you, you think I'm overstating that idea, well, take a look at Matthew chapter 23. The woes. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, that's not a way to win friends and influence people. But actually, if you look at it chronologically, when you get to Matthew 23, he'd already had many dealings with them. And he came to this place in Matthew 23, towards the end of his, his what we call earthly ministry, he came to the place where he was hitting them hard, hoping that they would get the point, they would change their ways, they would understand that what they were doing was wrong. And so he, he, he told them directly, and I encourage you to read that, Matthew 23, and read that with some understanding that he said those things because he loved them. He loved them. He didn't want to see them continually going astray. He didn't want to see them continually misleading the people. He said, woe to you. And he described their very actions. So Yeshua's actions and his words and also his relationships were flawless. Did that mean that everybody loved him? <laughs> Many did. When we read about the historical life of Yeshua, who, who various scholars over the centuries have looked at his life and categorized his life and, and looked at it in, in depth, they realize that great throngs of people of all varieties, let me put it that way, followed after him. They literally left things and followed him. It got so bad, and several times in the Bessarot, in the Gospels, there were so many people thronging around him that it, but at one time Yeshua has to get in a boat and speak to them from a boat. And my suspicion is, knowing human nature, that some of them actually probably went in the water a little bit. And Peter, who might have been the rower at that time, went out a little further. How far do you go out? Are you going to have them all swimming around you? <laughs> but his actions, his words, and his relationships, they were blameless. 
And he dealt with all these different layers of authority in his life. They tried to trap him with situations concerning the authority, like about Caesar. Should we give taxes to Caesar? One of his most famous and most quoted statements was his answer to that idea. He said, say it with me, render unto Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God. Boy, right there we could do a full stop right there and just spend weeks and months discussing that. Render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar. And if it stopped right there, it would only be about Caesar. But as is the case with Yeshua's words, he always points to the kingdom. He came and he preached repentance and entry into the kingdom. And what was the second part? Render unto God, give unto God what is God's. And Yeshua handled those situations blamelessly, even to the point of his crucifixion and his sufferings there. Now, some propose that the words of Torah, the words of the Torah, and in this case, Torah can have a general meaning and a specific meaning. Torah can mean the first five books, HaTorah, can also mean the teachings of the Bible, the whole teachings. And in Messianic circles, and I think correctly, we say Genesis to Revelation is Torah, it's teaching, it's instruction for us. But some, just looking at the first five books of the Bible, Bereshit to Devarim, just looking at those five books and, and looking at those, they say, well, the things we read in the first five books are outdated. They don't apply to us anymore. Why do we need that stuff anyway? And I would suggest that that's a grave mistake to think that the words and the principles that we find in the Torah are outdated. Now, it's also not a good thing to just focus on the Torah because we need all of the Scripture. We need all of the revelation of God. And all of it should point us to Yeshua the Messiah as the very center and core of, of human history, of eternal history, of all kinds of history. Yeshua is at the center. Hopefully, my point is that he's the center of your personal history. Now, is the teaching of the Torah, and some would even add the teachings of the New Covenant. Are these things outdated? This reminds me of something. Speaking of outdated, let me share something with you. It happened in August of 1988. And the August 13th, 1988, English language edition of the newspaper. Who knows what a newspaper is, by the way? Does anyone know what that is? <laughs> the August 13, 1998, 1988, English language edition of the newspaper called the Jerusalem Post. Who knows what the Jerusalem Post is? It's a long time. It used to be called the Palestine Post and other names to it. It had in its business and finance pages a feature-length article by a reporter named Judy Maltz. And the article dealt with, to use the generic term, dealt with commerce. You know, it's, it was in the business and finance pages. That's what you would expect to read. 
And the title of the article, written by Judy Maltz, who's actually a, a well-touted uh, a journalist or writer, the title was, quote, The Tale of a Super Business, end quote. And the super business that was referred to was an Israeli chain of supermarkets modeled after American supermarkets of that time. Remember, the time is 1988. The Israeli chain of supermarkets had the name at that time of Supersal. Now it's called Shufersal, as best as I can pronounce it. Now, I want to read you several excerpts from Judy Maltz's August 13, 1988 article about the tale of a super business. Here's what she wrote. Here's some excerpts. In August 1958, the reason she was writing this article was really connecting back to August 1958. She wrote, quote, in August 1958, Israel's first supermarket was opened on Rehob Ben Yehuda in Tel Aviv. She continues writing, remember she's writing in 1988. She said, 30 years later, Supersal is virtually a national institution turning over more than one-half billion shekels a year in business with its 61 branches spanning the entire country. Yet with Israel's food industry barely developed, and remember she's speaking about 1958 to 1988, it was difficult, she continues, it was difficult to find enough different items to fill the shelves of the supermarket. And the article continues... Judy Maltz writes, quote, the key objective of Supersol supermarkets is to offer its customers specialty items that it can't find elsewhere, like coffee from Brazil. Any coffee enjoyers here? <laughs> now, I know what I just did to you when I said that. <laughs> coffee from Brazil. So, again, its customers, they wanted to offer its customers specialty items that it can't find elsewhere. This is this Israeli supermarket chain, Supersal, as it was called then, like coffee from Brazil, American peanut butter. <laughs> and I remember that. I was living on a kibbutz in early 1975. And how many of you grew up with peanut butter jelly sandwiches? And I know what I'm doing to you now when I mentioned food. So I mentioned drink and food now. And so we arrived on the kibbutz. I spent uh, the first summer in 1975, I spent there on the kibbutz. And with other, some other Americans. And item number one that people looked for was not chocolate. Or anything like that. It was American peanut butter. And Israel at that time in 1975, they had a product of peanut butter that was, to put it mildly, gross. <laughs> it's good now. But they were developing that. It wasn't a place they grew a lot of peanuts like the United States. And it was very sweet. And I like sweets too. Any, any, anyone else like sweets here? There's a few of us that will admit it. But the peanut butter back then was very sweet. It was like sugary, gra uh, grainy. And so when we arrived there, and I was one of those who was looking for American peanut butter, just plain old peanut butter there. 
And so the, the supermarket chain Supersol is trying to supply items to Israel in 1988, starting in 1958 to 1988, supply articles that you can't find in Israel. And they listed, Judy listed, Judy Moss listed the writer, coffee from Brazil, interestingly, American peanut butter, and then this third item I didn't have any craving for in 1975 and the other years I was on the kibbutz. The third item was Romanian mushrooms. Who has a craving for Romanian mushrooms? All right, I don't see any hands on that one. <laughs> I don't blame you. And that was, those were the last two words of Judy Maltz's article. The last two words were Romanian mushrooms. Now, at the end of the article on Supersoul, with those last two words dangling out there at the end of that sentence, right underneath it was another short article. Again, this is the business page, business and finance page. And frankly, I have a copy of this at home <laughs> in my file. I was so impressed by this. And right underneath the article about Supersol and coffee from Brazil, American peanut butter, and those last two words, Romanian mushrooms, right under the two words, Romanian mushrooms, juxtapositioned in that newspaper, the Jerusalem Post International Edition, there was another article. And the article was called, I'm not going to tell you what it's called. I'll tell you something different. Then I'll tell you what it's called. The article had no name of authors attached to it, which oftentimes means it's not, you know, it's Judy Maltz did the big article on, you know, uh, the Israeli supermarket, the tale of a super business was its name. But this one had no author listed to it. It just said, quote, post economic staff, Jerusalem Post economic staff. That's, there's the authors. No names attributed to it. Now, they might want to go back and put their names now. But the title of the August 1998 technology article that was right underneath the last two words of the first article I mentioned, right underneath the two words, Romanian mushrooms, was this heading. Microsoft plans unit in Israel. The article was about this big. I know you can't see that. No author attached to it. Way at the bottom of the page, Microsoft plans unit in Israel. And the article was very brief and it lacked details. Basically, what I just said to you, the title was basically the gist of the whole article was that short. Didn't even say where they planned to put the, the, their, their unit, to the Microsoft uh, unit in Israel. It just simply stated that Microsoft was planning to open a subsidiary in Israel. And friends, the rest is now history. Because the Romanian mushrooms, as important as they might have been, or that American peanut butter, the Brazilian coffee, what that article pointed to, Microsoft plans unit in Israel far exceeded all of that. An amazing fact is that several major American companies, and you've heard these names, such as Apple, Intel, and obviously Microsoft, they chose to build their very first research and development facility outside of the United States, of all places, 
This little sliver of a land that is a very blessed land that God has set his name and his hand upon, the land of Israel, that's where they chose to put their first outside the United States research and development. And now history tells us from the 1988 article that simply said Microsoft plans unit in Israel, currently at this time there are more than 400 high-tech multinational corporations such as IBM, Google, Hewlett Packard, Cisco Systems, Facebook, and Motorola. They have all now opened, you guessed it, R&D centers in the land of Israel. Now, looking back, and as I said, I actually have the physical copy of what I'm talking about. Looking back, they might have wanted to blown up the article about Microsoft and kind of deflated the Romanian mushrooms, you know, on the page. Because this article about the opening of Microsoft, but there's something else I want to tell you about this. And this is the main point. In that very same page on the opposite side, you know how a newspaper, you can have an article on one side and you can turn the page and there's an article on the other side. Right on the other side of those two articles, there was another section. It's one I used to love to read. It's called Torah Today. And at that time, in the 1970s, the person who wrote Torah Today for the Jerusalem Post was a, a very interesting rabbi. His name was Rabbi Pinchas Peli. And I have saved many of his articles about the Torah portions. Very interesting articles. So he wrote that particular day, August 13, he wrote on the Torah portion that we have today, which is Ra'eh, and he made his comments about it. And I don't have time to read you all that he said, but I'll read you what he concluded because it's germane to what we're talking about here. Rabbi Peli wrote as his conclusion in his article on the other side of the Microsoft page, on the other side of the, the uh, SuperSol page, he wrote this, quote, the basis of Jewish unity, according to Torah, is God's fatherhood of all Israel. And the goal is in the words that follow, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. It says, Ki am kadosh atah, for you are a holy people. That was his conclusion. There's the gist of it all. The, the unity among the Jewish people, as he saw it at that time in 1988, had to do with the fatherhood of God and the call to holiness and abiding by that. Now, the establishment in Israel of supermarkets and research and development things, you know, that's, that's really something. They're all over throughout the land. I was reading uh, the latest statistics on Shufersal or Supersal that they had 61 branches in Jerusalem alone now. Big branches, small branches in the Jerusalem area, 61 branches. That even, I think, outdoes Walmart in some ways. But as good as those are, having Microsoft having research and development, having a supersol, supermarket chain, does not make Israel a unique place. There are many countries, many places that have research and development going on, and they also have supermarkets. What makes Israel unique is this covenant relationship with God that he has with the Jewish people, 
and that special call that's upon all people, that call that we should all become, as it were, a holy people before the Lord. So long before there were supermarkets and R&D campuses, there was a heavenly father. And I want to I wanna shout out about him. There was a heavenly father. There is a heavenly father reaching out to all who would come to him. Are you among that crowd? Will you come to him? Will you give him your life? Will you look to him to help you with your words, your deeds, and your relationships? Will you do that? Because long before there was R&D campuses and long before there were supermarkets, there was a heavenly father who was reaching out to all who would come to him. And this loving, merciful outreach was accomplished for all the nations when he sent his son, our Messiah, Yeshua, to die for us. Now, we should not downplay the sacrifice that Yeshua made. Please don't ever think of that in a trite way. Yeshua's sacrifice. There's an author who wrote in Guidepost. His name is Alton Gansky. I want to read you what he wrote about Yeshua's sacrifice. I think it's quite insightful. So I'm quoting now from writer Alton Gansky. He wrote, quote, Jesus left behind many things to visit this world. First, he left the glory of heaven. We know very little about what heaven looks like. Revelation, the book of Revelation, describes it as a beautiful place. Trying to describe it properly is beyond human language. By coming to earth as a human, Jesus took on certain limitations and weaknesses. For example... The timeless one, Yeshua, the timeless one became bound by time. By the passing of day and night, he came under that. And formerly, he was above time. He's the eternal Messiah. He was above time. He was unaffected by its passing, the eternal one. How do you diminish eternity? You don't. He was unaffected by it. On earth, time ticked by for him as it does for all of us. God is described as being omnipresent, present everywhere at all times. There is no place in heaven or on earth a person can go where God is not, according to Psalm 139. Yeshua, Jesus, also took on basic human needs. Human needs for food, for rest, for warmth, for shelter, And so much more. He took all that upon himself. He left the glory of heaven and came all the way down here to this lowly estate where fallen mankind, sin-laden mankind, abides. That's what he did. He also experienced emotional pain. You know, he was betrayed by someone very close to him. He took emotional pain. He had physical pain. How can one not look historically at what happened at the crucifixion and come away with the idea he suffered great pain? And who did he suffer that pain for? For you, for me, because of our sins, not because of his, because he was blameless. He was, to put it mildly, perfect, (laughs) blameless. 
He did all that. He left it behind. He left all those glorious things behind. He did that so that he could take us in. So he could receive us unto himself. So that he could bequeath unto us through faith in his name. And through the redemptive blood that he shed for us. He could bequeath unto us eternal life. And put a, a, a stranglehold on death. And end death. And take away mourning. All these are the, the heritage of the people of God. He left all that. And all these sacrifices show his great love for each one of us here today. Now, chapter 2 of Philippians reads like this in a paraphrase. When the time came, Yeshua set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, a bondservant to God's will. He became human like we are. Having become human, he stayed human and completed the task set before him, which was the redemption of mankind, of all who would accept him as Lord and Savior in life. Do you accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life? No one can answer that except you. And I pray that you do. There's no other way to be saved but through the name of Yeshua. Yeshua willingly went through an incredibly humbling process. Just think about it. He left all the glory to come down and be born in a so-called manger in Bethlehem. Not even in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, outside. He lived a selfless, obedient life, and then he died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death that could have been imagined in the first century, which was crucifixion. This stone was placed in front of his grave. Some of you have visited the garden tomb, one of the potential sites of where that happened. And you saw where this stone used to be in the garden tomb that you could roll it across. There's this, this uh, place that the stone would have gone in. The stone is rolled away. And it was rolled away when Yeshua rose from the dead. And guess what? As a result of the power of his resurrection from the dead, the author and completer of our faith, he ever lives and he's at work inside of our lives. So whatever you're going through today, friends here today, he's at work in your life. Call upon him. Look to him, not to yourself. Look to him. Cry out to him. If necessary, get on your knees before him. Get on your face before him. Avail yourself of his grace because right now is the season of his grace for you. And ask him to help you. And he readies himself for a glorious return to this planet. He was taken away and crucified for our sins. He rose from the dead and he said that he's coming back at a day and an hour that we don't know. He said, be ready. Are you ready for his return? He said, be ready. And let me conclude with this from Titus chapter 2 verse 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, we should live righteously, we should live godly when in this present age, now. 
looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And I want to conclude with a final passage of Scripture here today. And I think it's only befitting to conclude with the words of Yeshua himself. Here's what he said. It's true that in the Torah... It says that we are to be an Am Kadosh, a holy nation. But that's repeated often in the Brit Hadashan, the New Covenant, that we are to be a holy people before the Lord. And we're to conduct ourselves as an Am Kadosh, a holy people. Now, I'd like you to note what Yeshua said in Luke chapter 13. And let this ring, think this through. This is something that he says that we really don't have the, his interpretation of it. But I believe if you listen carefully and maybe look this passage up later, you'll see that there's a very significant point to this. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. Yeshua also spoke this parable. Here's what he said. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Cut it down. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also. In other words, give it some more time. Let's see, maybe there'll be a change. Maybe some fruit will come forward. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Do you despise those things not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, to a changing of your ways? And then he says this very difficult word addressed to the Romans, which was both a Jewish and a non-Jewish community historically. He continues in verse 5 of Romans 2. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And then there's that big word, B-U-T, in verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Will you pray with me? I hope that that got through 
what he was saying. This is an important time. We are heading towards the high holy days and we're about to enter the month of Elul. This is not a time, I don't believe any day is a time for playing around, doing your own thing, despising authority, being a gossip, stealing, anything like that. Immorality. This is not the time for that. No time is good for that. And we all stand before God. And he's provided atonement so that we can live in a different way. Live in his way. To become mature and complete because of his Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and kindness. Thank you that even as that parable said, somehow you've extended the time of your return. And Lord, we know that your forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance, that we would stop being gossips and stop doing the things that are wrong in your sight. Stop being self-oriented and be more oriented towards you and your kingdom and your community. Lord, thank you for each person here. Each person is a testimony of your hand. Each of us, you have placed your hand upon us in different ways so that we might serve you faithfully and not be found wanting on the day of your return. Lord, we do lift up Israel to you, as shall be mentioned during the announcements. We pray that you will be with the land and people of Israel at this time. We pray particularly for the Messianic believers in Israel. And thank you that there are kehilot, there are communities, congregations throughout Israel from Elat all the way up to Hadera and all the way up to Roshanikra. Lord, may your name be spoken with great honor throughout the land of Israel. And we also pray for the United States. Pray for our political situation. We pray for our leaders. Lord, that in all things they would somehow get your message that you want them to serve you and to make decisions that are right in your sight. Thank you for the Shabbat, Lord. Thank you for helping us get through the service today without any PowerPoint or anything like that. We are encouraged because of your great love for us. In Yeshua's name, amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.